You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. So we're between uh, major topics, and this month we have a couple of different uh, odds and ends we're, we're dealing with. And today uh, we are Easter Killjoys, um, as you see the topic on the screen, um, because uh, people often think of church discipline as this dark, scary thing. And of course, nobody wants church discipline to happen uh, with them. And so part of what I want to do is expose a little bit what happens in church discipline and the process of it and the steps of church discipline to help us understand a little bit more why we do it, uh, what we do, uh, the reasons, the, the process. Um, and so we can, um, you know, so we can understand some of these things and just shed light upon it. It is important. I was going to talk about this weeks ago when, uh, in our Westminster Confession. We took a week to talk about church government, and this was a part of that. And I, by popular demand, uh, I made it an entire class today. So we'll spend the day thinking about church discipline. Um, which I know everybody woke up excited to talk about, right? So um, before we start, what I, wanted to, what I want to do is have you, if you have somebody beside you or near you, um, this is, uh, is Mark Van Drunen here? I don't see him right here. He's in the sanctuary. Okay. So th- this was Mark Van Drunen's idea. All right. So take, we're going to take a minute or two, talk to somebody beside you. Um, and, and the question is this, hey, there's Mark. Hey, wh- ask your question, Mark. Mark, Mark. <laughs> Uh, he popped in and he left. <laughs> ask the question. Have, you, you told me to ask this question, so I'm giving credit where credit is due. So what's the question people need to be talk, discussing in, you know, with the person beside them? You said to... <laughs> yeah, okay. So, so why, okay, so I'll, I'll ask it and you can reframe it in a, in a better way, right? So, <laughs> so why... Or for what purpose, or I'll say, why would Redeemer institute church discipline? Why would we do that? And so talk to your neighbor and, and bounce ideas off. Why would we do that? Is there a better way to ask that question? Okay. I'm sorry. I can't hear you. Oh, criminals, yes. All right. All right. So this was a test to see if you will actually stay on task or if you will wander uh, into something else and this becomes social hour. So we'll see. Um, would anybody like to share, a few people share the comments that you had or other, other people said that you thought were, were good. Uh, so a couple people, can you share what you discussed? Some of, the, some of the best ideas that came out of your conversation. Ray. Okay, yeah, restoration of someone who has backslidden. That's why process would begin or why church discipline would happen. Great. Yeah. I think the number one reason is God tells us to do so. Ah, God tells us to do so. Very good. Yes, yes. Protection of the local Yeah, protection of the church. Yes, but if you're a criminal, that's right, John. <laughs> The seriousness of sin. Absolutely. Very good. I would say so that the name of Christ would never be held with open shame. That's right. The name of Christ would not be held in open shame. Very good. Y'all are hitting on a lot of good things. What would the church 
this official sense of discipline, what would the church discipline somebody for? I've seen it done for um, abandonment of a husband. Okay. Yeah. Yep. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. Very good. Yeah. Unrepentant sin. That's generally, yeah, kind of the quick answer we'll give. Discipline begins with, uh, the process would begin with unrepentant sin. And it's a process for all the reasons y'all said to call somebody out of that unrepentant sin and say, hey, this is a big deal. You need to repent and turn from your sin. That's, that's the short summary. And we're going to unpack what that means a little bit more. But that, that's exactly right. Really good, really good stuff y'all have. Um, I'm going to breeze over a few of these first few points here. Um, the question is, what is church discipline? And Pastor Wright did an entire lesson on this. This was a, an entire chapter in the confession on, um, cen- on uh, censures, I believe is the title of the chapter. Um, so I want to just briefly go over this, but not in depth. Discipline is the exercise of authority given the church by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we believe it's biblical, as was said, uh, to instruct and guide its members and to promote its purity and welfare. So you notice this is um, maybe a bigger umbrella statement than we normally think of when we think of church discipline. And in new members interviews, I often talk about this and I'll, I'll remind us that there's two senses of church discipline. There's two ways we talk about it. One is that overarching, uh, this paragraph one here, it's general discipleship. Discipline is discipleship. So this general discipleship of the church and all of the ministries of the church, we are all under discipline all the time. We're all being disciplined every time we come to church. It's discipleship. It's instruction in the word. It's growing in grace. It's all of these things. And, uh, and so I don't want us to lose, like, the discipline is this narrow process that we'll get to. Discipline is all of the ministry and work of the church. It's to discipline us. And it's also our growth in discipline, in being able to, uh, in, in uh, committing ourselves to being in God's word, to being with God's people. We grow in discipline in those ways as well. So we can use the word in a couple different ways. But the second sense is the one we often think of first, um, and, and that's fine. But as long as we understand there's a bigger umbrella here, we think of it as this judicial process, this restricted and technical sense as our book of church order um, is quoted there. Um, let's see. So we have the, the rules of discipline in our book of church order. And it's how many chapters is that? Uh, 11, 12 chapters um, of uh, discussing this process. So if you have questions, this is the place to go. And if discipline ever happens to you, if, if you get a letter saying, hey, you're cited to appear before the session for these charges, here's the indictment, um, come talk to me and I'm happy to explain it to you. Come talk to our elders, come, we'll, you know, we'll explain it. Um, and uh, because you need to understand your rights. The book of discipline is there for members. And I say members of the church, pastors and elders are all, we're members of the church as well, is to protect members from courts of the church who go rogue. And all of this is here to protect you. It's not to be mean. It's not to have a big system uh, that you have to navigate. It's to protect you. And that is the, the beauty of our rules of discipline. Uh, that's a part of our book of church order. It's a huge protection for you. Yeah. That, yeah, no, that, that's, that's a great point. Yeah, you're not going to just keep, don't, don't go to your mailbox with fear and trepidation every day, right? Yeah, uh, no, that's not going to happen. You'll know if something's up before it happens. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't go first to 10, right? Um, you, you work your way up there. 
It is. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and, and we'll get to that. that. That's a really good point. This is not um, a punishment, right? Church discipline is not punishment. It's not to make you, you know, do your penance uh, so that you can get back on the right track. No, this is to say, hey, come back to Christ. Like, you've, you've abandoned him, we believe, and so we go through the process to, to ferret that out and make sure that's true. So, yeah, let's, let me read this, uh, some of these points here that, that get into this. What's the purpose? Why are we doing this? And y'all hit on this. Um, and this is a paraphrase of the BCO. Properly used, discipline maintains the glory of God and the purity of his church and keeps and reclaims disobedient sinners. So it's all about God, his glory, the honor in the name of Christ, as we'll see in the next quote. Um, the purity of the church... Paul talks about, right, cast out those, the, the sinner, uh, those who are infecting the congregation, not just a sinner, somebody who sins, but somebody who refuses to repent of their sin. And then it's also that for that person to reclaim them, to call them back to Christ, to say, you are in a dangerous place. Um, here's a, another section of the BCO. I did not put the citation there. I apologize. Judicial action is designed to rebuke offenses. This is 27.3, a later part of it. Um, it's a paraphrase again. Judicial action. So this is the, the narrow sense of church discipline. It's designed to rebuke offenses, to remove scandal, to vindicate the honor of Christ, to promote the purity and general edification of the church and the good of offenders themselves. So this is for the good of the offender. Again, it's not punishment. Um, the BCO uh, does not allow us to do uh, church discipline in a punitive way. It's not a scolding. It's not a yelling at. It's not, um, we're, it's not that people are angry at you. It's restorative to say this sin is ongoing and pervasive and you need to repent of that. Um, and, and I add this, add this, and this is to your point earlier. The courts are not sin hunters. The session is not hunting sin, trying to find it everywhere they can. And then we're going to send you that letter to make you show up and tell us what's going on. That's not what's going on here. And oftentimes we can think that way. This is, to your point, this is, you know, kind of the, the point of last resort. We don't want to go here. Nobody wants to go here. Uh, but we have to from time to time. Um, so the, the, don't think the session is out to get you. Um, there's two different um, ways of dealing with members in the congregation. Um, and I won't go into all the technical things, but we can think of one as pastoral shepherding. And that's what happens mostly. Hey, you sit down to coffee with, with an elder or a pastor and say, yeah, I'm really struggling with anger. And your pastor can encourage you. Your elder can encourage you in that. And, you know, say, hey, you need to, to look this way. Look to Christ and repent of your anger and all that. And, and that's kind of the context our sin comes out in most of the time. When you're talking with a friend, when you're in a community group, whatever it is, it's, it's more of this pastoral uh, situation. And that's good. We have to switch to this, uh, it's called the, the uh, power of jurisdiction. We switch to the judicial aspect when the pastoral remedies are exhausted. When we can't with private rebuke, with, with private um, uh, discussion, if somebody doesn't see their sin, then we have to go here. So this isn't, again, the first place we go is with judicial process. So courts are not sin hunters out to get you. So what can the church do to you? And man, time is flying. Um, this is when you're so much fun, right? No. Um, uh, so what can the church do to you? I, say it in a crass sense. 
um, in church discipline. So say the church finds you guilty. Again, we'll go through this process in a moment. What can the church do? Well, it can admonish, which is a formal statement that you're in sin and do not continue in it. Turn and, and repent. Um, it's a formal reproof. It's public or private. If it's a public sin, so if you're on the front page of the paper for embezzling, right, the session should, um, or if I'm on the front page for embezzling from Redeemer, the presbytery should make a public statement admonishing me for that. Um, because it's a public offense. Everybody knows, the, the Hudson knows, it's in the hub. All of Hudson knows that I'm stealing from the church and the church needs to come and say, this is not appropriate. We've dealt with this. This is not right. So an admonition is a formal statement, public or private. Now, if it's a private offense, you know, the, the dirty laundry isn't aired publicly or anything like that. The reproof isn't public, it's private. Um, but if it's a public sin, it is a public reproof. And this, uh, to be admonished, when this is the end of the censure, an admonition uh, requires repentance and restitution. So you don't stop here if, uh, if somebody is unrepentant. Uh, if someone's unrepentant, you move on. But if somebody's repentant um, and they have paid restitution, so if I've embezzled, I need to give the money back, and that's a part of my process of repentance, um, and then that admonition can be uh, provided and can be given. Uh, the second one is indefinite suspension from the sacraments. Now, this is only if there's impenitence, if somebody is not repentant, if they've been found to be in sin and they say, no, I'm not sinning, or no, I'm okay, or no, I'm not doing what you say, um, I'm fine, get off my back, then this is kind of the first step towards excommunication. You don't always have to stop here, but you can. And this is a stop to warn them, say, you can't come to the supper. You're not uh, declared, not a member of the church any longer. But this is kind of the step to say, come back. We don't want to do that. So come back. This is a warning to say, come back to Christ. This sin is serious. And so this, this does require impenitence. So if you're repentant, if you acknowledge your sin, even if it's a heinous sin, if you've acknowledged it, you will not be suspended from the sacraments. You will not. The sacraments are for sinners. They're for us who need grace and acknowledge that need. And if you refuse to acknowledge that need, then you can be um, pulled back from the supper with the suspension. Um, the next one is excommunication. And I want to read this. This is what our BCO says about excommunication. And this is the highest uh, level of, of uh, censure that can be administered. Excommunication is the excision of an offender from the communion of the church. Now, stop there. Communion of the church doesn't mean you're, you're shunned. Doesn't mean you can't come to worship. Doesn't mean we don't want you to worship. In fact, we do want you to come. But the communion there is in the technical sense of the supper and of membership of the church. So you're not to come to the supper, but we want you to come. We want you to hear the gospel. We want you to repent. The censure is to be inflicted only on account of gross crime or heresy and, notice, and when the offender shows himself incorrigible and contumacious. Fun words there, right? Incorrigible means not able to be corrected, improved, or reformed. So if they won't listen. And contumacious means stubbornly or willfully disobedient to authority. So if you will not listen to authority, you're contumacious. So it's not just that you sinned. It's that you won't change and that you refuse to submit to authority. Yeah. So on the suspension of the Lord's Supper mm -hmm. for repentance. Yeah. Sometimes my kids, right, they're, they're verbally, they're remorseful. Right. Repentance is true. I mean, sometimes it takes time. That's right. So, like, I hear what you're saying. Like, there's not some suspension, but 
practically or saying it probably is. So that that's right. If if we're unsure, so if somebody commits a, a heinous sin, or you see like for years and years there's been this pattern of horrible sinful behavior that comes to light, or even as one time, right? And and when it comes out and say I did it, I'm sorry, um, it's still appropriate to do the um, indefinite suspension when you're unsure of repentance, right? And so you can do this to say, hey, let's walk out repentance. Not, and and um, sometimes this will be admonition, will admonish you, and let's walk out, walk out repentance. And so it's up to kind of the session or the, the presbytery to decide which one's appropriate, given the situation. Um, if it looks like they're probably not repentant, then you'll suspend them and say, hey, we're not sure. We need you to do these things for, us to, for you to show us, demonstrate the, the fruit of repentance. Um, or maybe we think you are, so we'll just admonish you and stay, still say, hey, you need to walk in this way of repentance. Uh, this is what repentance will look like. And if they fail to do that, then you kind of move down the ladder or move up the ladder to the next one. It, that was very confusing. But is that, is that kind of confirming what you said? I, I think we're on the same wavelength there. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. No. So that is, there's nothing set that's left up to the session or the presbytery, whoever's uh, administering it. And you can appeal that. You say, no, that's wrong. That's crazy. That's not what repentance looks like. You can appeal that. And the, the court above will look at it and, and agree or just, you know, they'll come in to arbitrate that dispute. So yeah, it is up to the court, but they're overseen by others, which is the beauty of Presbyterianism. It's not, you know, the session doesn't have carte blanche to do whatever they want because the presbytery can get involved and say, no, that's wrong. You can't say that. So what would the situation I've seen go south in, in the church I came from is when you have um, the discussion about do we bring the state into the mix. So right. usually it was sexual abuse. Right. Uh, the case I'm thinking of was two minors. Right. And um, there's it was addressed in the church. Right. And there was the feeling that bringing the state in the mix was not the purview of the church. Right. There's encouragement to not bring the state in. Mm -hmm. um, is, do we have, I assume, be Presbyterians, there's a defined way to deal with that. If a law is broken, do you have to bring the state in? I think of another one where the secretary was stealing from the church. Right. They chose not to press charges. Right, right. That, yeah, so there, there's no stated... May, uh, there's no stated uh, policy on any, any of that. I will say we have, and, and I want to address your, your underlying facts there in a second. Uh, there is a study committee at our, of our General Assembly who will be reporting this summer on sexual abuse in the church, and they're going to put forth uh, some possible things in our Book of Church Order to mandate certain things in those cases. Because absolutely, um, in cases of sexual abuse, especially of minors, if, if I know I am required by law to tell, and if a church says, no, we're going to handle it in-house, uh, that's malpractice. Like, you can't do that. Um, you have to tell 
the authorities when this sexual abuse of a minors, um, even if there's a credible, I, I forget the actual language of the Ohio statute, but um, even if there's a credible report of it, you have to tell. Uh, even if you don't believe it, even if it looks credible or looks like it might be, I, I can't remember again the, the exact language. So no, this is not a cover up so that the state doesn't get involved. This is addressing the spiritual realities and there are criminal realities at play as well. Um, especially like we, we think uh, the sexual abuse of minors. That should never be covered up by a church or kept under wraps. Um, if it happens, it should be reported. Um, and so if I hear about it, it will be reported um, by me. And um, now with regard to other things, you know, the, the embezzlement or the stealing, the theft, um, the trespassing, that is up to the church to decide if they want to, to go that way. And it's not wrong for the church to do that. Uh, now, if they're doing it purely because they're mad or angry or whatever, that's fine. But if somebody do, does a criminal act, it is just for them to, you know, the, pay, pay the, the, the fine or whatever. Yeah, that's right. The restitution part. Absolutely. So um, it's not wrong for the church to do that. They don't have to in every case, but with, certainly with sexual abuse of minors, legally we're required to, and we'll, we'll honor that. Mark. Uh, just two quick comments on what Jared said and then uh, what Derek said. Um, whenever we have had cases like that, Jared, we have immediately uh, responded and reported to the police and then it's up to them. Yeah. So as mandatory reporters, I completely agree with what Jason was saying. And then with what Derek was uh, saying, I wasn't on session, but maybe other gentlemen can build, um, uh, use this as an example. There was a time where somebody was caught and sent, she didn't come as her own confessor, but she was caught, and um, but she was repentant after that. And the table uh, was withheld for a period of time so that we can see fruits of repentance. Mm -hmm. And I think um, I think that was very wise mm -hmm. in Sessions part. Um, and I know you're getting to this. So often what happens is when people are under discipline, they'll flee. Right, right. Um, as Carl Truman says, the, the, the biggest problem with the church is the automobile because they can just go to another church, right? But, right. But no, uh, no punitive issues. Um, she stayed. And it was probably one of the most, um, just one of the most redemptive events that I've seen. In yeah, where that's wonderful. Hmm. And forgiveness was uh, offered. Yeah, I don't know if wonderful. Uh, Joyce, want to make any additional statements on that? No, I think I think you've covered it. It was uh, it was certainly uh, an example of true repentance. Hmm. Um, the person did stay here, was suspended for a period of time, four or five months, as I remember, as we witnessed the fruit of perfection. Mm. That's neat. Yeah, praise God. And, and that's how discipline is designed to, to work. Um, by God, not by us. Um, so we have excommunication here. Um, and it says, you know, the design of this, and it goes over those points we've, we've discussed earlier. There are a couple other censures that can be applied to officers, just really briefly, just so you know. They can be suspended from office either definitely. So if they're repentant, they can still be suspended from office. If you're repentant, you can't be suspended from the table. Um, but if you're repentant, you still can be suspended from office. Because, you know, if I embezzle, um, you know, you don't want me preaching the next week, even if I am repentant of it, right? There needs to be a time of healing for the church. There needs to be a time of, like, processing what's going on. So, yes. 
Um, there's a definite suspension. There's indefinite suspension if they are not repentant. Um, and then there's deposition. So um, the, no longer uh, removing their credentials uh, as an officer, saying, no, you are no longer an officer in Christ's church because you've committed the sin. And some sins, even if they're repentant of that, they're deposed because certain sins do disqualify men from office. Um, so those are, those are the censures quickly. Uh, so how does discipline actually look like in, in, uh, in practice? There's two routes of discipline. The first route is without process. And this is when there's really no dispute regarding the facts um, between the member and the court of the church. So there's no, no dispute what's going on. And this first one is really the main, the main piece of uh, judicial discipline without process. This is section 38.1 of the BCO. When someone comes as their own accuser to the court and they say, I have sinned, they provide a full statement of the facts. They sign off on the statement of facts. They say, discipline me, do whatever you need to do. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I've sinned uh, and I repent before God and man of that. And then the court has to sign off and say, yes, this is the right, this is the full statement of facts. This is all that happened. And so we will discipline you only on the basis of this one document that we see right here. Um, and now the court and the individual can work together on forming the right, uh, the right statement of facts. Um, and then, this, then the session or the, the court will then, or, or the presbytery will administer a censure. Um, you're guilty of sin. You've said it yourself. Uh, administer the censure. And then that censure, though, is subject to uh, being reviewed by the higher court as well. So, you know, if I express, you know, I was angry and then you excommunicate me because I'm angry, well, then, you know, I'm going to go to ask the presbytery about that because that's, that's not appropriate. That's not right. I guess this is another spot that looks like a little potential difficulty navigating between the state and the church. Yeah, right? that's right. Um, if, if I'm accused of stealing from the church. That's right. And I see the facts such and such a way, you know, yeah. the state decides to prosecute. That's my right. My attorney would never tell me to go ahead and just write a confession. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because um, yeah. that's going to be, I got to think, that's yep. going to be admissible. Uh, no, it depends on where you are. So um, I know other states, they'll say if you are talking with clergy, ordained clergy and ruling, el ruling elders and teaching elders both fall under that, uh, that legally. I, again, I don't know what Ohio law is. I should look it up and tell you all. Um, but if you do that for the purpose of confession, then they don't have to disclose things to the state. Um, so that's for, started with Roman Catholic confessionals, right? So I go to my priest, I confess to murder. Uh, the priest can't tell the state. Um, so there's also laws in certain states that clergy can't go do that unless it's one of these other things, you know, the, the sexual abuse of a minor, those kinds of things. Um, so sometimes state law actually protects that and wants this to happen. I don't know what Ohio is, but I know other states are like that. But the, pro, your, the point you raise is valid and you, no attorney will ever tell you to do this. Uh, and the question is, what's right to do? Um, talk to your attorney. Uh, yeah, I see one over there, you know, scratching his, his yeah. That's right. In truth, the legal system is, is, is uh, necessarily uh, two combatants, right? The prosecutor. Right, right. Are interested in truth. Yep. Winning. Yep. Those are different processes. Kind of, yeah. I don't know, I can see it getting a little. It gets real messy. And um, I'm intimately involved in a case right now where that's exactly what's happened. And it's, it's really, really, really messy. So there's, it's, it's hard, it's hard. Um, I'm not gonna take questions here. I'm gonna keep moving. Um, so you can come as your own accuser um, and bring this to the court um, and the court will determine the appropriate censure. 
Uh, there's a couple other things case of that process. I'm going to scoot over that so we can get to with process. What does it look like if there is process? And this happens when there's a dispute normally. Usually when there's a dispute regarding facts, I say this happened, but the session says this happened. There's a dispute over facts or dispute over, well, I don't think it's sin or no, the presbytery thinks this is sin. So there's a dispute over whether it's fa or the facts or whether something is a sin or an offense. And so process is designed to protect the integrity of the system by providing the accused and the court particular rights of due process and fairness. And I'm going to jump through this again. You know, I wanted to spend, you know, 75% of our time on this one slide, but that's okay. Um, so what, be what begins judicial process is a charge. A charge is laying out offenses or an offense. And an offense is anything that's contrary to scripture um, at, at all. Any sin that you commit contrary to scripture, uh, and particularly as our confession has defined it, uh, that is an offense. Um, and it, this charge is approved by the court. So no individual can just draw you a charge, say, hey, I'll see you at the session. Um, you know, you, you sin. There's two ways charges can come. It can come from a voluntary prosecutor. So if, for example, um, somebody has sinned against you and you've talked to them, You've taken somebody else following Matthew 18 to talk to them and say, hey, this is sin, and they still refuse to repent, or maybe they refuse to give you what they stole from you. Then you can come to the session and, and draw up a charge and say, so-and-so uh, stole from me um, in, in violation of God's law. They stole from me, and I, I need restitution, and this person needs to, um, this person needs to repent before God. And so... And, individual can be a voluntary prosecutor. In our day and age, that rarely happens. That used to happen, you know, a couple hundred years ago. Um, usually what happens now, it originates with the court's own investigation. So the court will hear a credible report and the court itself will investigate. And if the court finds a strong presumption of guilt, they are required to institute process at that point under BCO 31.2 of the BCO. Um, and so, uh, so usually the court will actually draft the charges and approve the charges and then appoint a prosecutor who handles it from there. The court then steps back and they become the jury at that point. And there's a prosecutor who prosecutes the case. So second is the prosecutor draws an indictment. So all that, uh, that are the charges that are there. So you violated um, God's law by stealing and then they'll say all the specifications. On such and such a date, you went to such and such person's home. On that date, you took X, Y, and Z from their home. You have not given these things back and you have told them you do not have those things. You know, whatever. All the, all the facts are spelled out so they know what they're being charged with. Um, it's clear as day. It's on the piece of paper. And then all the evidence is listed too. What witnesses uh, are, are, have, have testified to this, what documents they have to prove it, so that the person who's accused knows what's coming. None of this is to blindside them. This is to tell them what's happening so they know what the court is going to do uh, and say. So the prosecutor draws the, draws the indictment. Um, the indictment technically doesn't have to be approved by the court, but I would say uh, it's absolutely a good idea for the court to determine that the specifications in the indictment are sufficient to make out the charges. Very legal, technical issue there. But I do think the court should look at them and approve that, that what's being alleged is sufficient. So if you say, uh, I'm guilty of, of theft, and all you say in there is that um, Brother Bob is missing you know, uh, three um, I don't know, bottles of whiskey from his house, uh, you clearly took them. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't allege the offense. It doesn't show that I did anything. I have no connection, and I don't even like whiskey, so clearly I didn't do it. Um, 
So they ha it has to be sufficient to support the charge. Um, that was a bad example. I apologize. <laughs> That's what you get for coming up with illustrations on, this, on, the, on your feet. All right. So at this point, uh, the session will draw up a citation and say, hey, on such and such a date, you have to appear. Uh, here are your charges. Here's the indictment. And you need to appear to, to plead guilty or not guilty. So um, this parallels very much our legal system. Um, you need to show up. Do you agree with what we're saying or do you disagree? Do you agree with, uh, the, disagree with the facts? Do you disagree with the conclusion? Whatever it is, you can say guilty or not guilty. If they say guilty, great. They, they move to a censure. They say, I'm repentant. Um, and then you work from there. Uh, if they say not guilty, then you proceed with more process and to a trial. Um, we'll get through this quickly and then we'll, we'll take a break. Uh, well, I'll have to finish up, but we'll take questions in a moment. Then the trial happens. And the trial literally hap happens with the moderator of the session, using the session as an example, or a presbytery, the moderator of presbytery, sits as the judge. The rest of the court sits functionally as the jury. And then you have a prosecutor. And then you have the accused. Uh, the accused is allowed under a book of church order to have representatives, assistants, people to, to help him, basically attorneys, um, but they're not allowed to pay them. If they pay them, then they're not allowed, but if, if it's somebody who's just helping them, has to be a member of the church, certain requirements, blah, blah, blah. But you can't have somebody helping you, so you're not there all on your own. Um, and if a church won't let you have a representative, one, they're violating the BCO, and two, it's going to be overturned and you're going to be fine. So... Um, uh, so you need to have somebody with you to help you. Uh, I would not recommend anybody go through this process by themselves. Although I've known some churches that basically don't allow somebody to have, a, have a, um, an assistant, um, a representative, and that just never goes well. Um, so there's a, a trial. The prosecution goes first. They present evidence. They present their witnesses, present their documentary evidence. We have an entire chapter in our BCO on what evidence is permissible in a trial. Uh, so you can go through there. Um, it's not nearly as fun as the federal rules of evidence, but, you know, it's, it's a start. Uh, and it's, it's helpful, provides guidelines. And then um, the accused will present his evidence or her evidence. Um, saying, no, I didn't do that, or I wasn't there, or whatever. Uh, it's not a sin. And then their closing arguments. The prosecution begins, the uh, accused responds, and then the prosecution has a final few minutes of rebuttal if they desire. And then after that, the session or the presbytery will go in and determine whether on each count you're guilty or not guilty, and then um, determine the censure based on that. And then, finally... You have 30 days to file an appeal to get it up to the next court, whether you disagree with the finding of fact, whether you disagree with the uh, piece of, of uh, process that they did wrong, uh, procedure that they did wrong, or whether you disagree with the censure, uh, wasn't appropriate, wasn't right for whatever reason you have. There's a bunch of grounds for appeal that you can go to the next higher court and they will review it. Um, so that's a ton of information. Um, again, you can go back to BCO 31 through 36 deals with all of this in great intimate detail and you'll get bored by the end of chapter 31, I'm sure. Um, but it's, it's really helpful and really, um, really important that we have a process and we follow a process. So I will stop here and I'm sure there's lots of questions and comments. Two questions. Yes. Going back to excommunication. Yes. That person is that that's right. Why would you want them to still be there until they show some evidence of repentance? Wouldn't that person still have the ability to kind of like a little leaven as well as the body? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So why would you encourage them to continue to come? So if somebody's excommunicated, why would you want them to come? Right. 
because we know the gospel transforms sinners, and we know the Holy Spirit's at work. Um, and you're right. So they can't, they can't come to congregational meetings and stand up and yell and scream. They have no standing to stand up at congregational meetings. Uh, they can't do anything officially. They can't file a complaint with the session. They can't do any of that. Um, they can't come to this table, but we want them to hear the gospel. But you're right. They, they're not a part of the, the intimate communion of the church, but they can come and worship things we do publicly. They're welcome at. But you're right. It, it does come to a point in which, I, I mean, I've been at churches before where they've you know, whether this is right or not, they filed restraining orders against people, sent them no trespassing letters because they've been that disruptive. They show up and you're disruptive. That's another question altogether. Oh, yeah. For this process here, mm-hmm. why wouldn't I just go to another church? For this process here, why would you not go to another church? Um, practically, that's what happens. Um, I would imagine 95% of people, once they get this in the mail, they're gone. They never want to come back. And that was Mark's point earlier. People flee discipline all the time. They don't want to submit to the process. But you all, if you're a member of Redeemer Church, you have made an oath before God to do what? Submit to the discipline and government of the church. Even if we're wildly wrong, you're going to have to go through the process and take it up to Presbytery and get Presbytery to slap us on the wrist and say, you're so wrong, or kick us in the butt. Uh, all the more and say, you're so wrong. Can't believe you treat somebody this way. Or you need to walk through the process and say, wow, ser- I seriously consider the own state of your heart. Are you really in sin and you're that blind to it? So you have, um, you have promised to submit to this discipline. You've promised to submit to this process. Um, and before God, you've made that oath. And so it is something to walk through. But is there a recourse if they do leave and you know that what they've done is yeah, so um, at this point, if people refuse to show up, there's a process. Um, uh, if you cite them one time and they don't show up, you can cite them a second time to show up. And if they don't show up the second time, they can be excommunicated for being contumacious at that point in time. So um, because they're not submitting to the process, and that's usually what happens. They're not actually excommunicated for the sin that's alleged. They're excommunicated because they don't follow through the process and they refuse to submit to the process. But you don't contact the next church and say, yeah, that's right. That's the hard thing because we often don't know. They go off the grid. We never know where they are again. Um, we don't proactively often um, go after them and make sure people know. If it's a PCA church, the PCA church has to contact us before they receive them as members. And so we'll tell them, hey, no, they're, they're under discipline. They can't join. They're not allowed to join a PCA church. Or actually, we have an agreement with OPC, ARP, some other similar like-minded churches, URC, where they're not allowed to join churches until they deal with their discipline here first. So um, there are some safeguards, but it's only very small PCA, ARP, OPC, URC churches. Not, you know, they could go down the street to another evangelical church and join, and they would never know. And that's, that's really the hard part about all this. Danny? Is there any situation where we would treat someone as a tax collector and have nothing to do with them? Um, I know you kind of, kind of that, but... I, as far as uh, shun them, no. I don't believe that that's biblical, and maybe there's a diversity of opinions on that. I don't think that's, that's what Scripture teaches, um, because what did Jesus do? He ate with tax collectors and sinners, right? So we don't shun them. We don't say, you're excluded from my life, from uh, being a friend of mine. Um, we now know you're not a part of the body of Christ, and you aren't giving evidence that you're a believer, but I can still be friends with you and love you, and I want you to come to Christ. So um, it, it, the nature of the relationship changes, um, they don't commune with us at the table, but we still can remain a part of their lives. I think that's important. Yeah. I have a question. Mm-hmm. Um, I think 
question on the uh, in, in in scripture where it outlines church discipline. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a whole process where you're approached by one person. That's right. Two or three approach you, discuss. That's right. Opportunity for restoration, repentance, and all that. But I don't recall in scripture that it dif uh, differentiates. That in the end, if you're unrepentant and you that you can stay, I, I thought you were to be expelled and not. It welcome to worship, right. but just restrict you from the sacraments. I, that distinction, I don't know. Yeah, and, and people will read some of those passages of Scripture uh, in, in different ways. I don't think it's talking about shunning. Again, some Christians have, have read it that way, and there is shunning. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think that's what Scripture's teaching. Um, and we could go passage by passage, and I could explain why. Um, but I don't think any of those passages actually bear out um, having nothing to do with them. Now, Again, they're not a part of the body of Christ, and that's a major disruption. Um, but we still love them and care for them, and we still want to pursue them and bring them into our homes to, to, to draw them to Christ. So that's, that's our desire. Um, and, I, yeah, if, if we don't let them come to church, we're basically saying you don't need the gospel, and they need the gospel more than anybody else at that point in time. So... All right, uh, we are over. So if you have more questions, come talk to me. Uh, these are important things. And again, if you have questions, if this ever happens to you, talk to me. Um, I really care about this stuff, probably more than most people do, because I think it's so important and I've seen it go wrong. Um, and I want to make sure it goes right for you. Um, so talk to me and uh, we can together uh, walk through this. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for this resurrection day. We thank you for Jesus Christ. And we thank you that he rules his church. Bless us, Lord. Pray that this doesn't, we don't need to know about this or go down this road. But we pray that you would keep the church pure, that you would uh, be working in our hearts to make us repentant of every sin, that we would honor you and not bring any disrepute upon Christ or his church. Bless us, Father. We thank you. We can now enter your gates with singing and your courts with praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.